Hello, everyone. Welcome to the World of NP podcast, an informative platform for healthcare consumers and providers where your voices matter. My name is Dr. Christine. I am a nurse practitioner with a doctor of nursing practice. Also, I am an attorney practicing out of California. Our special guest today is Melanie. I had the privilege of knowing Melanie for many years. She is a colleague, mentor, Best of all, I could call her my friend. Melanie is a published author, nurse practitioner, and an attorney. She specializes in healthcare law, focusing on issues such as compliance, coding and billing, and disciplinary action. She also sets up practices for nurse practitioner, physicians, and other healthcare providers in a variety of settings such as family practice and aesthetics. Melanie represents clients before their prospective boards in California and Arizona on various healthcare law-related issues. Also, as a practicing nurse practitioner and an attorney, she is uniquely qualified as an expert witness in malpractice suits and disciplinary actions. In addition, I'm happy to announce that Melanie will have her book out soon. The title is Suicide. A Mother's Journey Through Her Child's Pain. You will be able to reserve your copy soon. You can reach Melanie through her email. Her email is belestrahealthlaw@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We would like to say that today's podcast is not meant to give medical or legal advices, but instead it serves as an educational purpose only. If you'd like to discuss the specifics about your cases, please contact Melanie Belestra. Good morning, Melanie. Morning. Welcome, welcome to the World of NP Podcast. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I was first a nurse practitioner and um, pediatric nurse practitioner and still am and still work as one. And I got into law accidentally. I had been working on my doctorate in public health at UCLA and we moved to Spokane, Washington. And so I called a couple of my profs because I had taken some elective law courses at UCLA and I asked them what they thought about me going to law. They said they thought it was a great idea. So I figured I'll take the LSATs and see if I have a high enough score to get in. And I did. So I entered law at that time. You were a nurse first before you became an attorney? Yes, I was a pediatric nurse and then became a pediatric clinical specialist and then a pediatric nurse practitioner. What led you to become a nurse? Oh, it happened as a teenager, actually. I babysat a lot, and I just, I love children, and I wanted to help children, and I thought nursing was a great profession to help children, sick children, and so from the time I was a teenager, I wanted to be a pediatric nurse. Melanie, could you please elaborate more on your law practice? Okay, my law practice focuses on healthcare law, and I represent nurse practitioners, nurses, physical therapists, physicians, uh, and all the healthcare providers before their boards is the defense work. And then the other half of my practice is I review and write contracts and help set up business, businesses for healthcare professionals. Melanie, for registered nurses who are listening, I'm sure they would like to know what can they do to provide safe care, but also protect themselves? First of all, you have to know your policies and procedures wherever you're working. I know it can be a thick book sometimes, but you really need to be aware of them. And also what's happening a lot are nurses are overburdened. And then when you're overburdened, mistakes are made. So you really need to look out for yourself, but you have to be careful because in one instance, if you say, you know, this assignment is unrealistic, I can't do it, then the board of nursing or your um, facility can charge you with abandonment of patients. So you really need to keep accurate documentation on what the ratio is to patients, or if you uh, feel unsafe, you need to contact your human resources and let them know. And most of all, you need to have your own malpractice insurance because you have to remember if your um, employer has it, then they're the ones that make all the decisions, whether to settle or not to settle, that kind of thing. If you have your own malpractice insurance, then you can decide whether you want to settle or what you want to do. And further, many facilities don't have disciplinary insurance for you. And with malpractice case, you're not going to lose your license. However, it then goes to the board of nursing. If it's settled, 
or if you're found guilty, goes to the Board of Nursing and that's where you really need representation and need to choose your own representation because you can lose your license there. So I say for nurses, it runs, I think, 120 or so a year. You spend more than that at Starbucks and it's worth every single penny. And you want to make sure you go with a malpractice company that allows you to choose your own attorney for disciplinary actions because you want to make sure that attorney truly understands nursing, the responsibilities you have. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the difference between claim made and occurring? Yes. Claims made is offered to nurses. It's not offered to physicians. And what that means is that you're working for somebody or a facility and something happens and they fire you or you leave that facility because you're unhappy. And then two years down the road, somebody sues you. You will not be covered because unless you have these insurance, when the claim is made, it won't cover you. Whereas occurrence assurance, if you have occurrence insurance, you're working for that same facility. Something happens, you leave the facility, two years down the road, you get sued. You will be covered because they cover you if you are insured when that occurred. So even though you leave, you have the insurance when it occurred, so you're covered. And that is a very distinctive way to look at it and the difference because many facilities or employers have claims made for you and not uh, occurrence. So you wanna get occurrence insurance and you wanna make sure your employer also has that. But if they don't, that's again, why you get your own insurance because then you have the say in whatever goes on. Melanie, should nurse practitioner carry medical malpractice insurance? Absolutely, because again, if something happens and you're the low man on the totem pole, you may be the one that's blamed and you may not have done anything. And I've had cases where a nurse practitioner was sued for malpractice and they called me, but because all insurance companies have their own panels for malpractice insurance. They called me, they explained what happened, I said, don't settle it. You didn't do anything wrong. And they had their own insurance. So they're, they're, they had the claim made to their insurance company, which at that time was a company called NSO. And they represented them. The nurse practitioner was dismissed from the lawsuit. Uh, from the, yeah, the lawsuit. And in another case, I had two MPs that came to me at different times. And their insurance company would not let me be representative of them and in fact said they had to have their insurance company represent them and the nurse practitioners were they really wanted me so they had to pay out of pocket for all my expenses but I got the cases dismissed so even though an insurance may be cheaper doesn't mean it's better you have to look at the entire insurance company and what they offer you so again, as a nurse practitioner, every doctor has their own insurance, no matter what. And nurse practitioners are becoming uh, more and more visible. The more visible you become, the more lawsuits that are going to occur. So you absolutely should have your own insurance, even if your employer has it. The typical cost for medical malpractice insurance for a nurse practitioner vary, right? It varies, yeah. It can vary anywhere from 800 to sometimes up to 2,000, depending what your specialty area is. I pay 1,200 a year as a pediatric nurse. In your opinion, it's worth every penny, right? Yes, it is, because I am comfortable. If something happens to me, I know the clinic has me covered, but with my own insurance, I know I have to say so in what happens. In California, why is it important for a nurse practitioner to have collaborative agreement? You need to have that agreement because if anything does happen, if you're sued for malpractice or reported uh, and complained against to the board of nursing, you will have something in writing that says what the doctor's responsibilities are as a supervising physician and what your responsibilities are that discusses protocol, standard procedures, and goes into everything. If it's just verbal, the physician can say, I didn't say I would do that for the nurse practitioner. I didn't agree to that. If it's in writing, you have it, you have the support. So even with a contract, I run across so many MPs that don't have contracts. And it's, if you don't have a contract, anybody, it's his or her word against your word. 
So it's very important to have everything in writing and you need to have it in writing pursuant to California law, Arizona law, where you don't need a collaborating physician or your state law, wherever you are. What you're referring to contract, is that different from collaborative agreement? You can sometimes combine them or the collaborative agreement can set out more what your responsibilities are and what the physician's responsibility is. A contract is something that it's for a year, you're going to get paid X amount of dollars, et cetera. Because again, I've seen so many arguments come up with contracts and I've reviewed so many contracts where the employer breached the contract. If, it, if you just have a verbal contract, you can't prove breach of contract. And some of the things I've seen in contracts are just terrible. So any nurse practitioner, even RN, if you're starting a job, you need to have a written contract. You need to have it reviewed by an attorney who knows something about nursing uh, so that they can point out what's good, what's bad, that kind of thing. For the written contract, what would you say one or two things that typically would come up and it's up for a debate? Okay, uh, one of the things that I saw in a written contract was that if the nurse practitioner left the practice, they would have to reimburse the practice for any kind of needs or costs that came up while they were in the practice. And, and that is just ridiculous. Or another, way, another thing is you'll see an aesthetic contract for training, they'll have to pay back from training. That is reasonable, but like in a, if you're working in family uh, practice, Family practice is pretty standard. And if you're a family nurse practitioner, you should have gotten the education and training while you were in nurse practitioner school. So there aren't any secrets in family practice. And this is something you'll see more and more in contracts too, that they want control of anything that you develop or anything like that while you're working for them. And if you're working for, on something separate from the practice should not own what you're developing. So you really need to be careful today because I see more and more contracts where they want control of everything and it's just not fair. Uh, another issue is on call. They won't say anything in the contract about being on call and then when you go to work with them, you have to be on call for every weekend. So you, these are just examples of different areas where you really need to be careful when you sign a contract. For nurse practitioner practicing in California, why is it important for the nurse practitioner to have the standardized procedure in place? First of all, because it is in the statute, you can't go into a job and work one day without standardized procedures. I've seen too many MPs start uh, a position and there's no standardized procedures. The physician doesn't get in trouble, administration doesn't get in trouble, but with this board of nursing, if you don't have standardized procedures and they find out, you're gonna be put on probation automatically almost. So don't start a job without standardized procedures. And some of the employers will say, oh, we're in the process of developing them. Now, that's great. When they're done, I'll look at them, but to see them before I start the job. And you absolutely have a right to see the standardized procedures before you start any job. Because again, it's your license, not theirs. Nothing happens to them. You're the one that can lose your license. Thank you for that clarification, Melanie. Typically, what goes into the standardized procedures? There's two kinds. There's one that's more of a medical model, and then there's what's called process protocols. Now, the BRN does have an example on their website of protocols, which are more geared towards the medical model. Another uh, set is the process protocols, which you can bring down online. Rebecca Zettler, Z-E-T-T-L-E-R, has this. And she talks about evaluations and what needs to be uh, done for the MP, and then goes and divides it into primary, secondary, and tertiary that you'll be seeing. And with that, you can reference specific articles or uh, books that you would use in that standardized procedure. And both of them are acceptable. Personally, I like the process protocols because you don't have a book. You just don't have as many pages, but the BRN does accept both. And you need, and the biggest problem I see is nurse practitioners coming in from other states. And 
we're about the only state that has standardized procedures. Most states separate the nurse practitioner law and the RN law. The California VRN does not separate it. We are all under standardized procedures. There's no separation. So you come in from another state and you don't realize that and you start working and something happens, you're gonna be in big trouble with the VRN. So this is something, I don't know how to get out to other states, but any MP that calls me from another state and thinking moving to California, I tell them that's one of the things they have to realize that they have to do. Melanie, for a nurse practitioner who already have a contract in place with the supervisory position and the facility, would that be enough? Would they be able to say, I don't need standardized procedure because I have contract in place? No. The standardized procedures are completely different than the contract. The standardized procedures basically goes through and says what you can do, basically. And if you come up with a new procedure um, or a new drug you're using, you must put it immediately into the standardized procedures because if you do something that's outside the standardized procedures or outside your formulary, which you must have in the standardized procedures, then you need to be able to show that you have something written up about it. And this is something a lot of MPs don't realize too. If you have a formulary, if you're working in a hospital or something and the hospital has a formulary of its own for you, then that's one thing. But unfortunately, you can't refer to Hippocrates or some of these other formularies. You have to have your own formulary of what drugs can be given. And with Schedule two drugs, they have to be patient specific. It's extremely important that you do all this correctly. What's the difference between collaborative agreement and standardized procedure? Collaborative agreement basically sets up what what are the physician's responsibilities going to be? What are your responsibilities going to be? The standardized procedures and protocols basically set up what you can do and, and it doesn't say what you can't do, but if it's not in the standardized procedures, you can't do it. And also you need to be able to show that you have the clinical, the, the teaching education and evaluations for procedures that you were not taught in your nurse practitioner program. You need to be able to show the board of nursing that you're competent in these new procedures, that kind of thing. So make sure you keep notes if you're taught by the physician, how many hours you spent in didactic, how many hours you spent clinically, how many patients you were evaluated on so that you can show the board of nursing that if they investigate it. For a family nurse practitioner, can they work in urgent care? If they establish a standardized procedure for them, can they say, I have standardized procedure in place, I'm a family nurse practitioner, these are the detailed procedures or medical diagnosis that I could see patients under? Yes. Now, one thing you have to look at, too, are where are the certifications? At this point in time, there is no ER certification. So a family nurse practitioner who sees all ages would be able to work in an ER setting. However, if you have an acute care certification, you can't work in a family practice setting. Or if you have FMP, you can't work in an acute care setting. So you need to be very careful about what your designation is. Sometimes nurse practitioners will go back and do postgraduate work so that they can have a broader or more narrow certification. But you need to look and see what certifications are out there. And it's unfortunate because things have happened. I had a case where it was an FMP who started seeing psych patients in rural areas of California. And she started this before they had a psych designation. Years later, 15 years later, almost 20 years later, she got a complaint against her. And our board of nursing went after her because she didn't have a psych designation. I thought this was extremely unfair because she'd been doing it for all these years and she'd gone to all these different courses and had all these CEUs, but our board of nursing was very adamant. She doesn't have a psych certification. We have psych certifications and therefore she cannot, you know, see psychiatric patients. So we have probably one of the strictest boards, if not the most strict board in the United States. 
Melanie, for a certified family nurse practitioner who's interested in working in urgent care ER, would you recommend additional studying? Yeah, urgent care and emergency room are a bit different. Urgent care is more, you have a cold, you have a pain, and from urgent care, you're, if it's anything serious or anything, they're going to refer you to the ED. So urgent care, I don't see that much different. As far as ER, if I was going to work in an ER, I would want some kind of training. Personally, I worked in a pediatric ER, not as a nurse practitioner, but as a pediatric nurse, and got training online. Today, there's different courses and CEUs that you can take. So if I were wanting to go, if I wanted to work in a PDR, which I did at one point as a nurse practitioner, I did not have any additional training but I had worked in pediatrics for so long and the ER physician was very patient. So I was able to adapt rather quickly, but I would advise because there's so many courses and stuff that go on today that weren't available when I was working in a pediatric ER. So I would advise that you get CEUs or something to show that you have tried to adapt your license to this area. Melanie, in addition to Whatever field that nurse practitioner decide to pursue and practice in, would you recommend that the standardized procedure reflects the field of practice? Yes, I do. Because in the standardized procedure, it should have the age group, whether it's geriatric, pediatrics, family is from birth to death, basically. But reflect that. And also, it'll reflect it in your references, too. Melanie, for the practitioners who have came to the United States and gone to a nurse practitioner program, but in their uh, native country, they're practicing physicians. They have in-depth and breadth of knowledge in medicine, and they practice family nurse practitioner, but they can do beyond their scope of training. How much of it can they expand into their nurse practitioner role? Again, what would be important, they would have to show where, how they have the didactic, the clinical, to do the procedures that they're doing. And it can be more difficult when it's out of the country because we have no access to what countries, what they require in the medical schools. But what they can do is work with a physician that does those procedures and everything, have the physician evaluate them to see if they can do the procedure, and then they can. And then just simply incorporate into their standardized Melanie, pertaining to the Full Practice Authority Bill, AB 890, does it reflect a a full practice authority or it just has a little bit more restriction than than we would like to see? Okay, this bill has a lot of restrictions on it. And so we're, it's not like you can, bill passes today and even in 2021, we're just going to go into full practice authority. There's quite a few things that have to be done. There has to be, it's not a board, but committee appointed with physicians and MPs and a public member. And also the Board of Nursing wants to have its own certifying tests. So those have to be developed and that's not an easy task. Also, we don't know, are they going like uh, someone like me that's been practicing forever? Are they gonna grandfather me in or am I gonna have to take the California test? We just don't know what's happening. We know that a certain amount of hours that you have to have in order, you know, to go through this process and eventually get to uh, practice independently, but it's not an instantaneous solution. So before anybody gets too excited, and it is progress, it's definitely progress, but we need to um, have set out, and I imagine the California Association of Nurse Practitioners will do this, set out exactly what needs to be done, when this is going to happen, and all of these things. Because it's not like it's saying, once the bill passes, you can start practicing on your own. It's it's not that easy solution. So we need to really watch to see, to have it explained exactly what is going to happen when and how we become independent. There are three different healthcare settings that nurse practitioners yes. could practice. The first one is, it's interesting to me that nurse practitioners could continue to practice under the standardized procedure. Yes. 
So mm-hmm. for those nurse practitioners who's interested in just leaving things alone, I'm happy as it is, the California nurse practitioner will have the capability to do that. Yeah. Now, the second setting indicated that nurse practitioner could practice independently without standardized protocols and procedure in a defined setting after completing the transition to practice. Mm-hmm. Another one is that additional um, adding on the nurse practitioner having to transition, participate into a, a three-year practice in addition to practicing according to the standardized procedure and protocols. Could you tell us between those two distinctions? No, it's, and that's why I'm saying we don't know how it's going to be implemented because it's, are they going to say that someone like me, I've been, a, I don't know, a nurse practitioner for 35 years or something like that. Are they going to say, because I don't want to take the board's test and everything, so I'm going to continue working in my setting under standardized procedures? We don't know that. And it's not clear how they're separating. Again, you work in a facility, but then you don't have to work under standardized procedures. That's not independent because you still have the supervising position and all of that. And so then hopefully the, the end one is that there doesn't have to be any supervising, but go through all these transition stage. You don't have to have a supervising position. You don't have to have standardized procedures. But how we're gonna transition is not really that clear. And that's why I'm saying this bill is not a panacea. It's a start, but there are so many ins and outs of this bill that it's not gonna be an easy process in any way, shape or form. But California has been trying to get some steps towards independence for years. We are surrounded by states that have independence. We're like the island in a whole area of states that have independence. It's still not clear why the Board of Nursing doesn't support us in that, why the California Nurses Association won't support us in that. We don't know, but California is behind in that area, definitely. And with this bill, again, it's going to take so much interpretation to determine how we go from one to two to three and finally are able to work independently. And the thing is, the medical associations have been against independence for MPs in all states. That isn't the biggest um, obstacle that we have. The biggest obstacles we've had is California Nurses Association and our own Board of Nursing. And and it's a shame. It's really a shame. And, And why is that? have no idea. The California Nurses Association is not a nurses association for all nurses. It is a union and not uh, supportive of all nurses. And I um, always in California, RNs and MPs have had to function under standardized procedures together. We're one of the few states that I don't even know if there's any other state that combine MPs and RNs under um, the same statutes. They don't separate us out. And you have to realize the California Nurses Association, not, met, not that many MPs belong. Most MPs work in clinics or outpatient facilities, that kind of thing. So they're not happy about that. And in a lot of uh, areas, about 15 years ago or so, Kaiser and a lot of HMOs let MPs and PAs go because they felt they could teach RNs to do procedures that MPs do under the standardized procedures, which you can do according to the law in California. The unions, again, are, are not in favor of us having complete independence and neither is our own board of registered nursing. So those have been very large obstacles to us attending. And so this way they have a lot of authority as we transition to independence. Melanie, could you tell us a little bit more about the transition to practice? According to the bill, as it stands right now, it, it, at transition to practice consists of practicing under the direct supervision for three years or for 4,600 hours. Under, yeah. Yes. Besides that, do we know anything else? You know, not really. Again, having to take, not only California doesn't care so much about national certification, only like Medicare and uh, Medi-Cal and government agencies. It's hard to get a job without national certification. I get a lot of questions from MPs 
that went through MP programs years ago that you didn't have to have your master's and everything. And they had a certain period of time they could sign up for Medicare and they didn't. And now there's no way that they can. So um, the California Board of Nursing is going to be writing an exam because they feel the rest of the nation, I guess, doesn't know what, what they're doing. So we will have our own exam. So not only will it take that physician supervision, which I want to actually say too, even when you graduate from medical school, you only need one year of internship before you can actually practice. So in some ways, our, our standards are higher than physician standards if you do it in a comparative uh, model that way. But we, we don't know what it's going to look at because the board has not they've not set anything out. So again, that's why I say this is not an instantaneous fix. We just have no idea how this is going to transition or what they're going to require. Is the physician going to have to check on you daily or what are you going to have to do? We, do, we don't know. We just have no idea. The way the bill sits right now, after successfully completing a nurse practitioner program, after successfully passing the national certification examination, the nurse practitioner, in order to be able to practice independently, would have to go through a three-year transition to practice under a supervisory physician to certain capacity we don't know yet, or must practice under the transition of care for 4,600 hours. And don't forget, they also have to pass our BRN certification test. So you'll be tested to the nth degree. And it's national, if you ever want to go anywhere else, national certification is the one that is the most important. But now the BRN believes that it is, I guess, smarter and knows more than the National Certification Board. Melanie, to clarify, under the transition to practice program, the nurse practitioner would have to undergo a BRN exam? Yes. That's interesting, Melanie, because despite of the fact that the school has already deemed competency, national certification has deemed us competent to practice, now we have to jump through more hoops through this yes. transition program where we have to undergo three years or 4,600 hours plus pass the BRN examination. Okay. As it sits right now, that's what the law or this bill says. And this is the way, uh, if Governor Newsom approves it, then that's the bill, period. There aren't going to be any more changes. Not unless CMP goes back at a later time and tries to amend the bill. As it seems right now, it had already passed the Senate floor. Yes. All eventually, it, Governor um, of California signed it law. That's right. it. So between now and there's some possible amendments? I doubt it. I, I doubt it. Usually the governor doesn't change something. He usually either accepts it or rejects it. Do you think the committee who's overseeing this bill would likely amend any? They've gone through that process. Right now all that's left the governor. It stands as it is, and the governor accepts it or rejects it. I see. So that's it. Now, the bill also mentioned a committee, an oversight committee. Mm -hmm. The committee has nurse practitioners. I think it's two nurse practitioners, two physicians, and an RN. I'm not positive, but I think that's what it was. And the thing that I find sad is that physician assistants, which are similar to MPs, the training is different, the education is different, they're more on the physician model, uh, because every PA goes through all the specialty areas, whereas the nurse practitioner is more on the nursing model and specializes, but the PA has their own board. The Board of Registered Nursing, again, has deemed that this is not a good idea, that we should only have a committee. And I'm not sure why two physicians. I, again, can only assume they believe that nurse practitioners can't, I don't know, make their own decisions or need to be supervised. And our board of nursing is very strong in that. So how much clout the committee will have, I don't know. It, it is a shame because I had a case 
that went before the BRN and the BRN put the nurse practitioner on probation. And the uh, nurse practitioner was dual certified as a, a physician assistant. So we then went before the PA board and the case was dismissed. There should not be this much difference between the assessments between the PA and the MP because it's like our board of nursing is saying that they have a stronger value system or, or stricter value system than PAs do. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense to me at all. Not at all. Yeah, that's interesting, Melanie. What are the benefits for nurse practitioners who's practicing under full practice authority pertaining to reimbursement? Okay, you're looking at insurance companies, okay? The insurance companies in California have been the ones refusing to pay nurse practitioners directly. Gosh, 20 years ago, Susie Phillips and I went around to the different insurance companies saying, why won't you pay nurse practitioners uh, directly? Because there's no law that says you can't, and they said there's no law that says you can't. So I think what's going to happen, the insurance companies are going to do whatever the, the physicians want them to do. So that's another hurdle that we, we have to cross. Will they pay nurse practitioners or not? And they may not. So we don't know that one. I'm sure everybody has this question. What would then be the benefits of practicing independently other than having capacity to practice without supervisory position? If there aren't any other reimbursement benefits, I see that there would be an increase in patient care access. Yes. Okay. Again, you could charge fee-for-service, so the patient would pay you and then you can give the patient the coding bill and they can send it into the insurance company. CMP could have some more people go around talking to the insurance companies to see if they would, because Blue Cross, Blue Shield, all of those can be different up in Northern California than they are in Southern California. And like in Arizona, they pay nurse practitioners directly. So I think part of that is going to be convincing the insurance companies that they can pay nurse practitioners directly and that they'll make more money if there's more nurse practitioners out there independently, this kind of thing. We're going to have to convince them. That's not automatic. That will be our next challenge, an ongoing challenge. As we continue to support full practice authority, we should also look into how could nurse practitioners get reimbursement? Yes. Can physician assistants in California obtain full reimbursement? I honestly don't know that. What can you share with us about the process for nurse practitioners interested in, in owning the own clinic or are practicing independently? As it stands now, the nurse practitioner has to have the collaborating physician and form a medical corporation, 51%, 49%, but they need to protect themselves so that the physician can't, they see the patients and they build the clinic and then the physician wants to leave and then the physician wants 51% of the value of the clinic. So they need to see an attorney that can help this from not occurring. And what has happened too is nurse practitioners can't form their own corporation as an independent contractor thing, providing services for a medical corporation. But we've got a problem there with our AB5 law, which states that if you provide the same services as the facility that you're going to be doing work for, that you can't be an independent contractor, you have to be an employer. Now, there's a bill AB22 that's being introduced by Lyft and, and Uber so that they can become independent contractors. And recently, one of the laws that was passed the other night close to midnight was another one saying that these different artists and all these people that could be exempt, but healthcare providers were not in this bill. I don't understand why. I know that the hospital association is working with other provider associations to try and get a bill to, through to exempt us that at this point in time, that's not happening, but it is happening with other professions. So why we're not in there, I don't know. Wow. What can we do to overcome that to 
address that? Again, I think a bill needs to be introduced um, exempting health care providers. Physicians are exempt, but other health care providers aren't. So I, I think we need to get more involved to get a bill going that exempts us because it's not really fair. Now, I know that there's a lot of practices that still employ MPs, RNs as independent contractors. Now, at some point in time, they're going to do an audit and then they'll end up getting fined and that kind of thing. However, one more protective measure, too, is if you do have your own corporation, make sure that you have workers' comp and that you have all the deductions that you get as an employee. And that's a little bit of a protection. But right now, it's dangerous because AB5 does not exempt us. Going back to nurse practitioner profession, as nurse practitioners, we just okay. celebrated 55 years do you believe our profession is underrecognized? I do. And if you listen to any of the COVID stuff or any of that, frequently they mention PAs, but very rarely do you hear MPs. So I, I do think we're underrepresented. I don't think we get out there enough. But part of the problem, too, is that, yeah, the medical boards and the PA boards support the PAs. Our, our own Board of Registered Nursing doesn't support MPs. It's harder to get recognition, I think, than it is for PAs. If you listen to the news, and I'll bet you dollars to donuts, you hear more PAs being mentioned than you do MPs. And we need to get the word out there. And I think part of it is because PAs are supported by the physicians. We don't have anybody supporting us. It's just us. So we need to support ourselves. Mm-hmm. And even the RNs don't support it. The, there is the American Association of Nurse, Nurses California that used to be the CNA. That's a nonprofit, and they support us. But they're not large enough. The California Nurses um, Association is huge. And, and the public, they look at them and they think, oh, they're all the nurses in California when they're not. Because they don't, when they advertise and stuff, they don't say, we are a union of nurses. So we don't get the support that PAs do, I don't think. So Melanie, having had that knowledge, it's important for us to give ourselves voices? Yes. We need a lot more voices. Okay. And we have a national organization, AAMP, that does give us a voice uh, and that is very supportive. And in California, we have more restrictions than the majority of states. Because, for instance, New York, you have to have a collaborating position and all that. After so many hours, you don't have to have um, written protocols. You don't have to have a written agreement with a physician. You can open up as a professional nursing professional LLC and don't have to have anything in writing. All you have to do is be able to refer to a physician so that it all may look like New York and California are similar. We're not. What would you say the most common legal issues that nurse practitioners encounter? Okay, I think that obviously a standardized, not having standardized procedures, scope of practice issues, you need to know what is in your scope of practice and you have to have support for what you can do. Not having a good association with your collaborating physician, not speaking to him very often. And I just had a really sad situation where a nurse practitioner, she was a new nurse practitioner, and she did not get support from the staff. She did not get support from her collaborating physician. So she failed in her job. So you need to be sure of that. The other thing I don't like in contracts where they say you have to see 40, 50 patients a day, that's absolutely absurd. If you want to give quality care, you need to, you just never know. I can have a patient coming in for a follow-up visit, and then suddenly there's all these things going on where I expected to spend 15 minutes with the patient, end up spending an hour with the patient. Because what happens if you just allot that short period of time for every patient and a mistake happens, you're in trouble. The other thing is documentation. Documentation is the number one thing that can save you every time. And what happens, we get in a hurry and these electronic health records are not that easy. I spend more time just trying to click out of something or do something sometimes than I spend with a patient. So you need to not clone or do that type of thing in the electronic records. 
if you can't find where something goes, then just write it at the end of the record. Because that's one thing in electronic health records, you can't throw them away and they're time uh, sensitive. So the other thing, you don't want to do all your records at the end of the week. Um, and that's another thing in the contracts that you can ask for is administrative time to allow you to finish all your um, electronic health records. Uh, because I've seen some of the people doing it at the end of the month, something happens with the patient and they subpoena your records, you're going to be cream because they're going to go, what, you, you realized you did something wrong, so you went back to cover yourself. So documentation and the timeliness of documentation is extremely important. Right, because if something happens, then if you document it a month later, you may not remember the details of the incident. You may not be able to defend yourself. You just don't remember as much. And the other thing is the non-adherent, non-compliant patient. And I see that so often. And you keep hanging on to that patient. You need to documentate well on that patient. And you can discharge a patient from your practice. If you give them appropriate notice, which is at least 30 days notice, to see another provider, any prescriptions they have, make sure they have enough for that period of time. But... Those are the patients that are going to go after you every time if something happens and here they didn't listen to you. So you need to document well on those patients. You need to discharge them from your practice to make sure, you know, they're safe for the next 30 days and 30 days is enough time to get a provider. But those are the patients every time that will report you to the board of nursing or that will sue you. Mel and I are recommending thorough documentations if it's not in your documentation, it wasn't done. I'm sure Melanie could attest to this as well, that there aren't any cases that you have seen so far where we say that nurse practitioner documented too much, and that's never been the case, right, Melanie? Nope, nope. Melanie, you also represent physicians, dentists, physical therapists, for those providers who are listening and would like to know what kind of services that you provide for them? Basically, they're all the same kind of service. I represent them in disciplinary actions against them because, again, I have the health background. And I help all of them set up businesses because some of them want to hire this kind of person or that kind of person can do that, can a podiatrist supervise an MP, no, all these kinds of things. So uh, setting up businesses, disciplinary actions, reviewing contracts. I have a broad background in healthcare, so can help all these healthcare individuals. So do you represent physicians in the disciplinary action as well? Yes. What are the ongoing challenges that physicians usually encounter? Right now, it's drug usage, scheduled drugs. And that's huge, not only for physicians, but also for MPs. And not having drug protocols set up for people with addictions or anyone that's on scheduled drugs. That is the biggest thing that I'm seeing right now, unfortunately. So the benefits for a nurse practitioner then is to make sure you have everything in a standardized procedure. Correct. And, and that you follow it, that you follow your protocol. It doesn't do any good if you have them and you don't follow them. Melanie, are there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to discuss? No, I think we've been pretty thorough. I just want to say that it's going to be frustrating for MPs for AB 890. I think we're tougher than anyone. And so that I say, even if they make us jump through hoops, let's jump through the hoops correctly, or let's see if we can change the bill later on, seeing how it's going. But don't get frustrated. Don't get upset and just stay the course, join CAMP, because remember, we have one lobbyist in CAMP, and she's a good lobbyist. The Medical Association, the California Nurses Association all have many lobbyists. So it's very difficult to go up associations that have many lobbyists when we have one. Because I, I think there's close to 20,000 nurse practitioners now in California. And only maybe 5,000, 6,000 belong to CAMP. Can you imagine if two-thirds of us belong to CAMP, we would have that much more control and be able to go forward. And I really don't understand why nurse practitioners don't support nurse practitioners. <coughs> because the CNA certainly has a lot. 
and the medical association has a lot and we have the least amount of money. So money talks. And so I, I want to encourage everyone in whatever state you are to belong to your state organization, as well as supporting the national organization and your specialty organization. Because if we all stick together, I think we can prog you know, have more progress. And again, to solve any solution almost to anything is document, document, everything. And if a physician tells you to do something, document that because then if that ends up being wrong, you did what you're supposed to. And the one thing that I found in with the Board of Registered Nursing in California is that even if your supervising physician supports you 100%, says that you did the right thing, and we're required to work and follow that physician, the Board of Registered Nursing will look for some kind of minor thing to still discipline you. It can be, they want you to have better documentation. It's the Board of Registered Nursing, you have to remember in California is not your friend and um, they don't support nurse practitioners. So we're out there on our own and we need to protect ourselves and only we can protect each other. So belong to CAMP, support CAMP and let's go forward. That's, that's great, Melanie. So make sure every nurse practitioner in California, please sign up and belong to your individual chapter. There are a lot of chapters. Go into the CANP uh, website, see which chapter that is closest to you. Sign up and attend. But right now, amidst COVID, we may not be able to attend, but we can still keep in touch and listen to what our concerns are and then support it on issues of full practice authority, reimbursement, and independent contractor. Those three are major concerns, really our ability to practice independently. So are there anything else, Melanie, you'd like to discuss? No, I think you've covered a lot. And I just, like I said, I hope we stay strong. Great. Thank you very much, Melanie, for educating us on various health-related issues. We would love for you to come back to discuss AB 890. If you need to discuss specifics about your cases, please contact Melanie Balestra at balestrahealthlaw at gmail.com. You can reach her through that email. And also for more information on Melanie's law practice, please visit her website at www.balestrahealthlaw.com. Now, thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope that you find information valuable. At the World of NP podcast, our mission is to empower healthcare consumers and nursing professionals by giving them voices so they could advocate for the patients and for themselves. For more information about the World of NP, please visit worldofnp.com. We will have a weekly episode with new episode every Tuesday. Please help give voices to consumers and providers by following us in this special journey. We look forward to seeing you in the next episode. We thank you, and we thank you very much to Melanie Lestro. Let's give her an applause. Thank you.